Grace Berkeley, thanks so much for joining us on Scotonomics. It's really good that we can spend some time with you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, the first thing I'd like to do, I suppose, as a kind of mini introduction is just to get your or how you've seen just the last six months in terms of the UK political and economic scene, because so much has happened in, in such a short period of time. Mm. It kind of reminds me of... Um that point back in kind of like, well, I guess between like 2016 and 2019, when like politics was this, you know, huge thing that everyone was getting involved with and like people like me and lots of other new faces were kind of just coming up and it all felt, you know, like stuff was actually happening and was going to change. And then we had, you know, that period after the pandemic where everything just kind of slowed down a bit. Boris Johnson had this huge majority it just kind of felt like we were living under kind of Tory hegemony once again. Um, so to watch Boris Johnson and, you know, the rest of the Conservative Party pretty much single-handedly torpedo themselves has been quite something, um, especially since, you know, the Labour Party has had almost nothing to do with the changing fortunes of the Conservatives has been interesting. It's certainly, you know, more stuff to talk about and write about uh, in terms of the actual, you know, Westminster style politics which to be honest can be very boring at the best of times um but there's certainly more going on now which is good but there's just there's no there's no one really articulating an alternative which is what really frustrates me yeah I think that's that's a really good summary because it seems like there's lots of little fireworks going off mm. but but no one is trying to kind of dampen this fire that's in the corner of this huge institutional problem that we've got in you know Scotland the UK and Europe and, and globally with some of the other issues going on and so much happening can just be a distraction to what the real problems a, a question we often ask our guests is um, does the UK government tax before it spends and I suppose in essence it means our services paid for from taxes because what I've been noticing is certainly senior Labour politicians always talk about public money and the role of it for for example like windfall taxes in mm. paying for things is this a narrative that you see that you understand and you subscribe to well I mean no because it's not technically true that's not how the mechanics and the internal plumbing of government spending works um uh, a friend of mine, Josh Ryan Collins, has just written a paper looking at actually how the mechanics of government spending does work and kind of proves fairly um, consistently that that's not what happens. It's not like tax money comes in and then it gets, you know, churned into uh, government coffers and then it goes out again in public spending. Um, so that's definitely not how the mechanics of it work. Um, but taxation is important because, you know, government spending is obviously pumping demand into the economy. If you're not then, if you don't have levers whereby you're taking, you know, some demand out of the economy, A, you can get the economy overheating. So you can get, you know, inflation, which at this point in time is obviously a concern, even though inflation mm. isn't really being driven by demand, it's being driven on the cost side. Still, you don't want to add to that pressure. Um, but it's also because, you know, you don't want to end up exacerbating inequality because generally when you pump more money into an inherently unequal economy without balancing that out with taxes, it's going to actually exacerbate inequality because a lot of that money ends up in the pockets of the people who own all of the stuff. Um, so unless you're doing some taxation or more radically some kind of expropriation or changing models of ownership, then just kind of, you know, creating money to pay public services uh, is not the be all and end all. It's, it's not a panacea, basically. Mm. And in fact, it could end up making things worse. So um no 
that's not how it works. That doesn't mean that taxation is unnecessary. And it doesn't mean that when you are talking about a public spending commitment, you should also be talking about potentially uh, a tax as well, if you want to offset the inflationary impact of that, or if you want to kind of tackle inequality at the same time. That, that's certainly the view that, that we have on Scotonomics. Mm. But that's not the narrative that comes across from any, um, beside, besides the Greens, from any mainstream UK mm. party, Labour and the SNP. It's still very much about public money and being yeah. wasted and being spent. Do you not think that the chance for the left to, to, to very much approach taxation and spending in a very different way rather than just going along with the narrative that's driven by the, the Conservative Party? Well, I mean, the trouble with trying to, like, challenge this narrative, there is twofold, really. The first one is that the Conservative um, way of understanding how tax and spending works is just very common sense. It relies on a very mm. easy metaphor, which is, like, the way the government spends money is the same way as you spend money. Money comes in, you save it up, and it goes out when you want to spend spend money on something. Um, so we can challenge that at the margins by presenting a different model of the economy. For example, we can say, you know, like, this is about investing in people or investing in capacity. So, for example, when I go to university, I invest in myself, and that means I'm getting a higher income over the long run. Or if I'm a business and I invest in, you know, boosting um, my space or the kind of resources that I have available to me, I can then make more money over the long run. So you can kind of make that analysis and shift the ground upon which the terrain is taking place. But if you just go into every political debate and say, public spending isn't funded by taxation, and then people ask you why, and you have to go into the, the literal plumbing of how the mm -hmm. financial system works, no one's going to remember it. People aren't really going to believe you. The Tories are going to have a massive open goal. So I don't think it's really necessary or desirable to frame all of our, um, you know, commitments or all of our um, ideas around this idea of like, oh, taxes don't fund public spending. What we do need to, of course, do is push back against this kind of austerity narrative that says mm. the but the government is the same as a household. It needs to spend as much as it earns. We constantly need to balance the books. Now, as someone who like is out there quite a lot talking to people, this is much harder to do when people are feeling the pinch. And this is what's yeah. interesting, because at the very times when you need the state to kind of intervene, perhaps to kind of um, alleviate the impact on uh, employment and uh, perhaps, you know, spend more money to undertake long term investment. Those are the times when people are least likely to believe that the state can afford to do anything because they can't afford to do anything. And so they're like, well, if I can't afford to, you know, pay my bills and my taxes are going down, then how on earth can the government afford to do anything either? You know, it's the idea that we are all poor as a society. So how can mm. we possibly do that kind of thing? Um, and that's when it becomes, you know, much more challenging to make these arguments, which is why, again, we have to rely on kind of historical metaphors. We have to rely on the success of investment programs like the one we had, you know, to build social housing after the Second World War, like, you know, creating the NHS, um, you know, that analogy of how we got rid of all that war debt, which was you know, absolutely huge by basically investing in kind of long-term sustainable growth. And then also saying, oh, and by the way, if we don't spend this money now, then, you know, we literally will not be able to kind of um, survive as a species because global warming is happening and we really need to invest in decarbonizing our economy. All of those arguments are, I think, more compelling and just more easy to understand for the average person than just saying, this is how the plumbing of the, of the government finances works. And it's actually a little bit more complicated than 
taxes fund public spending. You need to meet people where they're at, basically. And unless we plan on like, you know, giving everyone, uh, every potential voter a like several year long course in economics, (laughs) which I don't think is going to be appealing for the average person, then we need to try and find metaphors that explain the situation to people as it is right now. And I think that's the real practicality of it. But, you know, it is building an argument on a lie by trying mm. to continue the same narrative. And I know Noam Chomsky said, you know, when you're a, when you're on a panel and someone says to you, how does it work? And if you don't, if people in the audience don't already understand part of what you're going to say, it's just completely lost on them. And that is the problem. I mean, my, my journey to, to better understanding how the financial system worked, it's taken a few years you know, mm. and you can't expect anyone to really understand this because, as you said, the the alternative story is so simple yeah. and, so, and so clear. But because of the looming climate crisis, I think that these are arguments that we can't ignore or well, we just avoid need to show people. We don't need to tell time. people why our policies are affordable. Like we don't need to say because X and Y and Z. We need to show people that they are affordable using the power of metaphor people don't believe and trust the conservatives on the economy because they go through all of their analysis of their spending commitments and say oh well actually yes this plus this plus this does equal this it's not like you know that everyone is massively looking into the detail of those policies it's because they come forward and say this is our narrative about the economy people Mm. buy the narrative about the economy they therefore trust the conservatives on the economy and if labor wants to be able to do the same thing or any progressive government wants to be able to do the same thing then again you have to have a narrative you have to be able to convince people that what you're doing is feasible um which was like perhaps part of the problem with the 2019 manifesto is that there was so much in there um it was difficult to kind of pull out what the central narrative was and also to convince people that there would be time and resources available to be able to to complete all of this stuff because we may not be financially constrained but we are as an economy resource constrained yeah we do have a certain number of people who can do things so you know that is something that you need to take into account when you're thinking about government spending um and long-term uh investment commitments so yeah you know we need to be able to say to people these promises are feasible they're affordable here's why narrative metaphor we don't necessarily need to like give be giving everyone a lesson in economics every time we're telling them <laughs> yeah, which we which we are probably guilty of. But but this narrative is in the same position as the narrative that led to neoliberalism in the late seventies. No one was listening. It was completely contrary contrary to what everyone thought. But they got a political party, a political parties on board. They got people supporting it, and they were able to kind of you know. But really there is a big difference the between the actual substance of neoliberal economics and neoliberalism as a policy platform and that is i think actually a really good analogy because the neoliberals weren't going out and telling people oh you know the central line of their policy like platform wasn't um inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon and it wasn't like milton friedman going around explaining to people the mechanics of his view his wrong Mm. view of how inflation works it was a political program that was based on again a simple set of metaphors which is that the unions are screwing over the country and driving up inflation. Poor, lazy people are bringing down productivity and they've been supported by the left. Those are what we, you know, those are the things we need to tackle in order to make our economy more dynamic. We need to like give people, you know, personal responsibility. None of that had anything to do with the kind of quite technical neoliberal agenda. It was backed by that, but they'd figured out how to develop a policy platform and a narrative, even more importantly, mm. that allowed them to do the kinds of proposals they wanted to do but which people could understand yeah no and i think that is a, a really good point you know but 
but it did happen. You know, there was this real big change in, in economics from a kind of relatively left field position. You know, it, it did work, you know, it would be... Well, in, in academic economics, certainly. And that was because of the shift in power relations that took place. So had Thatcher and Reagan not come to power, it's highly unlikely that you would have seen the shift within academic economics that you did see, because most of the time, you know, ideas can play a role in driving what happens in politics, a very significant role in driving what happens in politics. But politics also has a massive role in driving what happens in the realm of ideas. So if you want to be able to, if you, you know, think everyone should be learning MMT, great, you're going to need to, you know, build power throughout society and then use that base on, you know, from which as a platform from which you can kind of shift mm. the prevailing common sense. Um, you can't just start by saying, this is what I think about the economy. Everyone else should think this too. And then giving people a lesson as to why the things that they believe are wrong yeah. and why what you believe is right. Because that's what the left does all the time. And no one cares. They're like, <laughs> I'm literally struggling to feed my family. I don't need a lesson in how government, you know, finances work. Just tell me what you're going to do. Make it believable. And let me, you know trust you just look through your book again which i bought when it came out a couple of years ago and right. you suggest that the world needs saved from financialization it's yeah, a subtitle so, yeah 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 so i thought like would you like to give us a summary of what financialization is and then briefly why we need saved from it yeah so um my analysis of financialization looks at it both you know we're talking about this idea of relationship between ideas and power looks at it as both a kind of intellectual project that is um, related to neoliberalism and also a class project. Um, so a lot of the underpinnings of financialization as they manifest themselves in the economy, so for example, rising household debt, the um, you know growth of shareholder value or orientation in um, the kind of stock markets and in financial markets more generally, were underpinned by neoliberal policies that weren't justified on the basis of we're gonna promote financialization, they were justified on a kind of academic basis, which is basically all to do with wealth creation and standard neoliberal shibboleths. So, you know, deregulating the banking system, for example, um, was uh, a big step towards um, facilitating the big increase in lending that took place, which underpinned obviously the financial crisis of 2008, alongside, you know, removing capital controls, exchange controls, all these different sorts of things. Um, so that was a kind of coherent intellectual project on the one hand, but it was also obviously taken up by the people that it was. This intellectual project gained traction amongst a particular section or class um, grouping within our political establishment or within society as a whole, because it also stood to benefit those at the very top of society, it stood to benefit the wealthy. And in that sense, it was a kind of class project. Mm. Um, there was a particular faction of capital, um, kind of, you know, uh, what Keynes might call kind of footloose capital, um, which had become much more powerful over the course of the 50s, 60s and 70s. And by the time the crisis of the 1970s hit, there was this um, movement among this section of capital, which acts as the leader for the rest of capital, to say we need to move away from the Keynesian consensus and build something new. And, you know, that alliance between ideas and politics, between ideas and basically a kind of class group was really, really powerful and ended up giving us the neoliberal revolution. And along with that, the financialization of um, the British economy, the US economy, and indeed you know, the financialization of the world economy, which has been a much longer process um, driven in part by the power of the US state, um, but also by um, international capital in general. So why do we need saved from it then? What's so bad about that transition? So 
financialization or financialized capitalism is still capitalism, obviously. Um, so it's still a system that's oriented around the production of commodities for profit. It's still based on a, a cl the class division of society, basically. Um, and in that sense, it is it is capitalism. And so for all the reasons that I would be against capitalism, I'm against financial capitalism, things to do with exploitation, oppression, alienation. Um, but financialization does kind of sharpen that class divide often, particularly at the global level. So actually, what's interesting about financialization in the, in the core countries, so the wealthier countries, is that it can kind of blunt the class divide between labor and capital, because it can create this, uh, you know, middle class, i.e. Uh, uh, what I call kind of mini capitalists who own some capital, whether that's, um, you know, in the form of like shares that are in their pension, they don't overtly control or are able to exert much control over that, but they still have the ownership right, stake. Yeah. And they're also able to own their own homes, which aren't strictly speaking capital, but they're like a, a you know, a valuable asset um, from which you can kind of draw revenue. It's kind of rentier asset, really. Um, and that bargain basically between like the middle classes and uh, elites in the global north um, has allowed that class to grow really at the expense of working classes all around the rest of the world. So you have this quite stable social formation in the rich world based on an alliance between the wealthy 1% and the next kind of 30-ish percent with some other people drawn into that. Um, that really stabilizes capitalist social relations, not just in the global north, but also in the global south by you know the imperial power that is exerted by mm. um, these A states and B, the, the capitalists that are... Um, that, that are at home in those countries. Um, and so, you know, the other side of, of financialization is also the kind of deepening of, of imperialism and the strengthening of that imperial boundary, I suppose, between core and periphery, whereby the um, former ex extracts basically from the latter. Yeah. And because there was a physical trade route, wasn't there, which was ships and roads and resources were leaving that way. But with a, with an increase in, in, in financialization, that became so much easier because capital could just instantaneously leave the leave exactly. that leave those countries and accentuated the drain from from um, south south to north. Yeah, exactly. So you know, most of sub-Saharan Africa um, loses. It is the whole of sub-Saharan Africa actually loses more each year in capital flight than it gains in development aid. Yeah. Um, it's by just a, a, by a substantial, amount. I mean, you know, billions, yeah. if not hundreds yeah. of billions of pounds per yeah. year. So, yeah, I know exactly. Jason Hickel's done a lot of work yeah. trying to identify that amount. Yeah, and financialization has been a major cause of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in terms of the UK, what do you think it's done to the UK? economy uh, obviously there's this role of uh, of uh, it's encouraged them um, people to rent it's encouraged this whole idea of rentism with financialization but any other kind of real issues that's caused in the uk i think the biggest issue that we have as a result of financialization and neoliberalism has been the growth of individualism um because it's really eroded the class foundations upon which we could build as the left um, historically speaking, you had like a relatively strong in the UK trade union movement that was able to kind of not just allow workers to make demands of employers, but also they had quite a lot of political power in society more generally. A big plank of the neoliberal movement was uh, destroying the labor movement um, and um, shifting power within society from labor to capital and within capital to financial capital, which became the kind of hegemonic um, block within uh, their capitalist class for a while. Um, so that has really shifted, I think, the way that people think about 
not just the economy, but society more generally, you know, back in the day, you might think, okay, I'm not doing very well in terms of my wages, or I can't really afford to have the things I'd like to have. So I'm going to go to my boss with my fellow unionists and demand a wage increase. Today, it's kind of like, okay, I'm not doing so well, what can I do to like diversify my portfolio as an asset holder as this kind of individual um, economic unit? Um, whether that means like, I don't know, changing the way my pension is allocated, whether it means investing in myself, my own human capital, yeah. uh, in order to kind of compete better in the jobs market. We don't have that same sense of kind of collective solidarity. It was really destroyed by neoliberalism, not just as a political and class project, but as, as an, ideolo uh, an ideological project as well. So I think that's been, yeah, a really profound shift and a, a negative one broadly. Yeah, and we, we really see that when you hear people talking about their personal brand. Hmm. You know, and it really has kind of blurred that gap between work and life. I mean, I remember my parents, it was, you know, they finished at the office or the factory and that was it. But now we're encouraged to, you know, have a profile, have a social media profile, maintain that because, but it is all about, you're right, just looking after yourself rather than that collective. Uh, there was another thing I picked up from from Stolen. I thought this was a wonderful line. Um, but you said that the restructuring during the 1980s had, um, little to do with making the economy work better and everything to do with changing who the economy worked for. And I just thought that was such a, a really fantastic line. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you kind of like specifically, what role did privatisation play in that restructuring? Yeah, I mean, privatisation was really, uh, really important, especially if you think about privatisation as a much broader category than we're used to. So right to buy, for example, is in one sense the largest privatisation that's ever taken place. Um, if you look at the asset value of the things that were privatized, all those houses that were sold off as, you know, revenue generating assets for the British state and also these secure homes that people could stay in over the long term that went. And that was a big part of shifting us towards this highly individualized asset based model. Um, it also obviously exacerbated the financial crisis and has given us the homeless homelessness crisis that we have today. Um, so that privatization was really bad. All of these other privatizations as well, often they were undertaken um, below cost, like, uh, sorry, below uh, market value, like the um, like right to buy, where these mm. assets were sold off kind of on the cheap to give a windfall to those middle class or, you know, pro financial professionals um, who would purchase the shares or the homes. Um, and it was really a big upward transfer of wealth that exacerbated uh, the wealth inequality that we are still living with today. Um, and it also prevented um, us from being able to exercise any democratic control over those companies that were privatized. So, yes, the model that we had in the UK of running public uh, enterprises was fairly centralized. It was fairly top down. There wasn't a lot of space for worker control. But uh, in a private company, there is no space effectively for worker engagement. Um, they are, you know, these private companies are based on being able to exploit their workforce. So what you've seen with a lot of them is that there's been, um, they've really kind of got on board with the whole outsourcing agenda where they are paying their workers, you know, much less than, than what they deserve, whilst at the same time jacking up prices because often these things are natural monopolies. That's often the reason that they were operated as public companies in the first place. So we've got workers being squeezed. We've got, um, you know, uh, working people in general being squeezed because they're often paying higher prices. You can see this with, you know, the utilities companies today and, the, you know, trains and all these different sorts of things. Um, and all of that money, again, just being sucked up to the very top of the society yeah. with no worker voice, no worker engagement in how these services are being run. So, you know, it really exacerbated inequality. It 
took control in the economy, control in the economy, which was, yes, being exerted at the time by kind of state officials, not necessarily in a kind of democratic way, but it really, you know, restored the prerogative of uh, determining investments and uh, wage rates and all those different sorts of things within those companies to a set of uh, unaccountable shareholders and executives who are, whose only concern is to maximise profits. That, that play, um, plays into that idea you said about narratives. And the narrative for privatisation was that the public service sector was really inefficient. And by privatising, we would have much more efficient services. Now, that was a narrative, but clearly the motive was we want to earn from those services and yeah, we're not I mean, this bothered is... about how they perform because, you know, a lot of them we actually don't use or we can afford to pay for the alternatives. But that narrative was very powerful. And if you speak to someone, they will say the private sector is still much more efficient than the public sector. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a reason that a lot of these things were run by the public sector in the first place, which had nothing to do with, like, you know, economic democracy or inequality. It was because... That if they are in the private sector, they will end up being run by monopolies. Those monopolies will jack up prices, have bad service quality, not invest enough, mm. do all of these negative things that are bad for the economy as a whole. So there was never really a compelling economic argument for you know privatizing the railways or privatizing certain utilities, um, even in a kind of social from a social democratic perspective or a liberal perspective, actually. Those are things that should have remained in public hands. And they are in other countries across Europe. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's, it, you, you mentioned unions and, um, you know, quite, quite a few of our, our guests talk about unions. Why do you think unions as a kind of concept hasn't really come back again to, to anywhere near the, 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 the level of importance that people perceive unions to have? Lots of reasons. Um, so firstly, I think the fragmentation of a lot of those industries where unionization was strongest. So in like, um, mining logistics, um, in, uh, yeah, kind of manufacturing either automation has proceeded quite swiftly in those sectors. So there are fewer workers in those sectors mm. or they've been outsourced to various different parts of the world, which has made it difficult for that workforce, which is then scattered to organize collectively to kind of disrupt those um, production processes and, and demand higher wages. Um, obviously, as that has happened, or those two processes have happened, other sectors of the economy have grown in their place. So the service sector, in particular in the global north, has grown quite substantially in terms of employment. Um, it's often been seen as harder to unionize workers in the service sector um, because they are often less kind of tightly grouped together. Um, there are fewer um, places for them to kind of meet to discuss their collective priorities. They're often from relatively diff often quite different social backgrounds. So you have a mix of, let's say, students with like people who are in those sectors over the longer term. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, there's been this argument that those, the retail, hospitality, et cetera, have all been very difficult to organize. Actually, we're now saying that isn't necessarily true, which I think leads on to this next point, which is that it wasn't just about those structural changes in the economy. It was also about really people's familiarity with unions. Because, mm. you know, as you were saying, back in the 70s, everyone knew the power of a union because either their family member was in one or they could just see it on the news. Whereas today, most people, I would say, maybe not most, well, probably most people um, don't have someone immediately close to them who at least they are aware is a member of a union. Um, there are a lot of people who are in unions in the public sector, but they often play a relatively different role 
to those that you know were in the private sector lobbying for higher wages and and all sorts of mm. other things um so people aren't very familiar with unions and they don't really fit with our view of the world our view of the world is again this idea of like you know we are here to compete in the economy with other economic actors um and there's no place for unionism in that model so both of those shifts happening at the same time was a really powerful thing and a really, really bad thing. Um, yeah. Not just for workers themselves, but for the way actually that capitalism is working right now because there is just not enough, too much money is being sucked up to the top of the economy and that is creating the crises that we're seeing today. When when we interviewed James Midway, he said, you know, he speaks to some younger younger people and he tells them what a union is and they can't believe it. It just seems yeah. like this wonderful, th- what you had something like this. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and when he helps people understand the process of starting that again, they're really starting to see the power. And I, I do think, I hope that it is cyclical that we realize the power in collective bargaining um, as we're, you know, as, as, as we're moving, as we're moving forward. And my, my, the last thing I picked up in Stolen and that I wanted to ask you about was this wonderful quote that I've seen before. Um, and you mentioned it and it's um, said that basically at the, the, when the big bang happened um it made you know which was basically the, the the release of the financial services markets from kind of tighter regulation that i think it's one and a half thousand millionaires were made overnight um and it, is that at the heart of the modern economy the one that's built on financial services that some people became exceptionally wealthy without building or creating anything, they just mm. had that wealth by moving money from one place to, to the second, to, to somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that um, increase in wealth came from allowing foreign banks into the city for the first time, basically. Um, so it just, you know, the amount of wealth that was circulating there increased a lot. There were a huge number of buyouts. So uh, the financial services sector became a lot more concentrated and a lot mm. of it was obviously owned you know, by other massive uh, financial institutions by the end of it, um, which didn't, you know, harm British financial capitalists at all. It just internationalized the entire capitalist class such that now we have this highly internationalized, highly financialized economy, very interconnected with the rest of the world. Um, And it does, as you were mentioning, rely on uh, skimming profits off the top of activity that takes place elsewhere in the economy or skimming interest off, you know, transactions um, or off the incomes of, of other economic actors like households or or corporations. Um, so it's not in Marxist terms, a kind of productive sector. Mm. Um, mostly, there are some obviously elements of, of financial activity that you could class as inherent to the production process, that could, the production process couldn't take place without, but most of these activities are not actively productive, even in a kind of um, Keynesian or, you know, often liberal perspective, a lot of those activities, particularly kind of, you know, high frequency trading, uh, certain kinds of derivatives transactions aren't particularly productive. They're just moving money from one place to another. Um, So yes, from all of these different kinds of perspectives, you can argue that that made the, you know, the whole economy less productive. It's only when you really go to the kind of neoliberal um, slash neoclassical perspective that you say, oh, no, no, this is all about making sure that capital is allocated correctly in the economy. It boosts investment. It makes the economy more dynamic. That's now very difficult to argue because A, the financial crisis, which was just a disaster in terms of where financial institutions were allocating capital, and B, the kind of slow growth and massive fall off in investment that you've seen in both the public and the private sector in economies that are most financialized. 
how does that leave the United Kingdom, which which under Thatcher and, and neoliberalism basically decimated the manufacturing sector um, and built the economy almost solely on the financialization of this the city of London? Looking ahead for the United mm -hmm. Kingdom, where 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 is the future? Where is the the, the product the productive future moving forward on a, a from an economy that's built on that? Yeah, well, I mean, arguably, what happened in manufacturing was going to happen anyway over the longer term, because you were seeing these technological advances in, you know, allowing a lot of work that was being done by people to be done by machines supervised by people. Um, now, as a lot of people have said, that could be in an uh, equal and more fair society, a thing that would um, augment our productivity, mm. rather than forcing it to decline, because a lot of those workers end up in service sectors where productivity is lower. Um the issue is what we do with the service economy, actually, really. Um, and if we look at the kind of long-term um, sources of employment in the economy, we're going to need a lot of investment in manufacturing, yes, and particularly if we're thinking about kind of, you know, clean, green, renewable, um, energy, A, transport, B, you know, retrofitting, et cetera, all those things we're going to need to kind of decarbonize the economy, build social housing, et cetera. Um, but we're also going to need to focus quite a lot on the services sector as a source of employment. Um, and if we think again about long-term challenges, it's not just climate breakdown, it's also things like demographic aging, health crises, these pandemics are not going away. So we are going to need to invest much more in care, basically, have mm -hmm. a, a service economy that is based around care um, and making sure that those care workers are provided with salaries commensurate with the um, the real value that they create in society more generally. Because too often we've kind of seen care work as basically something that women do. And that's like, you know, they want to do it anyway, so we won't bother paying them that much. But actually, it really should be a much Absolutely. more significant factor in, in the way our economy works. Yeah. So... For the the prospects for the UK, then, you know, because you've just you've you've just given us what 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 we need to move towards. But how how does the UK get there? For, you know, at the, for moving from this current situation of being heavily reliant on the city of London and the rest of the economy really struggling by design. How does the UK move from 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 that position to to a, to a brighter future? Well, I'm not going to just repeat all the policies that I outlined in my book because I've got a lot of them in there. And if you want to look at all of those policies um, in much more detail, then do pick up Stolen and have a look at the policy uh, list that's at the end. Um, but, you know, the foundation for any of that has to be building an alternative political movement, basically. It has to be building mm. power um, among working people, just as the neoliberals build power among this section of, of financial capital and capital in general that allowed them to kind of complete their revolution. We need to be able to build power from the ground up. Um, and that means, yes, kind of organizing within the labor movement, but it also means organizing on the streets, in our communities and in politics more generally. And it's a long term struggle, as we've seen in other parts of the world. Um, you can't just have the shortcut of just winning elections. You have to be able to have built a convincing message that is uh, mobilized by a big and powerful movement. If you're really going to change the way that that power works and be able to implement any of this stuff. You mentioned your your previous book Um, your next book. What are you working on? So I'm currently working on a book that looks at how we democratize the economy. Um, so it basically argues that this whole idea of like free market capitalism is a bit of a misnomer. Um, capitalist societies are often not the most free market systems. In fact, they contain a lot of like decision making that is um, whereby outcomes are determined much more by 
central planning, basically, whether by, mm. you know, large financial institutions, firms, states, than they are by the decentralized market mechanism. Um, so we really need to start looking at capitalist planning and how powerful people at the top of our biggest institutions are really saying who gets what, and then start thinking about how we can pull that power down. Um, and that, you know, doesn't just mean taking um, wealth and handing it from one sector to another. So it doesn't just mean taking wealth and handing it from the private sector and putting it in public hands. That can be an important part of it, but it also means pulling power down within those institutions to place it in the hands of, of ordinary people, of the people who are using those services, working in those services, both to tackle this kind of set of elite interests that governs our economy and also to empower people and make them realize that, you know, we can change the world if we have the, the capacity, the resources and the right way of viewing things. Fantastic. Because a lot of people, when they look at the economy, think there's two options. You know, there's there's the government market, and, yeah. and there's the private. And that whole, yeah. that and whole distinction so between like public and private, uh, between state and market is something that is really pushed by the neoliberals and pushed by neoclassical economics and by liberally, liberal political theory mm. in general as saying these are two entirely different spheres of power. Whereas actually in capitalist economies, there isn't that much separation between the political and the economic, both really all our kind of political economic systems work in the interest of the same sorts of people. Um, yeah. So we need to kind of democratize all of those systems. Absolutely. And there's a whole variety of different ways that, that, that companies and communities are structured at the moment. This isn't something that we're creating. It's already being created and also proving and proving a huge amount of value for, for community communities um, as a very different way of structuring um, their economy and their society. But the, the the last thing I wanted to cover with you really, um, before we mentioned a little bit about Scotland, was the Green New Deal. Now I know you've been an advocate of that for 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 some time, but how do you think that is progressing, um, as a as an idea in the UK and Europe and and in the states and globally? Yeah, I mean, it seems to have a good foundation at the moment. The real difficulty is making sure that those policies are elaborated. Biden ran on something along the lines of like a green, um a Green New Deal-ish, Green New Deal light. And that a lot of it either just got, you know, removed when he became uh, president or like held up in the Senate. Um, so I think it's really about adding some meat to the bones of those policies and um, yeah, kind of building a, a wider case because a lot of people still haven't really heard about what the Green New Deal is. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of work to do still, I think. So what what are your thoughts on Scottish independence? And, you know, if you could, if you were Scottish, um, how would you vote? And I, I wanted to kind of preface it by saying, you know, when we've asked that question to to, to similar um, English-based people on the left, we've kind of said, it seems like you want political shake-up of the United Kingdom. It seems like Scottish independence is probably the best way to kind of allow the progressive left to have this kind of big institutional change, a real driver for institutional change. And it seems to me, obviously being a little bit biased, that independence is, is something that should be supported by the, the, the left in, to be in honest, England as a way I to really do that. think that it's uh it is something that has to be decided by Scottish people. Um I think that the kind of interventions by English people going up to Scotland and saying you should do this and you should do that doesn't help either side. Um, I can see a strong argument for independence. Personally, you know, as an English person, I would prefer for Scottish MPs and Scottish progressives to stay 
within, you know, some sort of United Kingdom in order to sway the balance of power within our own set of political institutions. As little as they can. That might end up being very significant, especially, mm. you know, in, in forthcoming elections where it looks very unlikely that Labour's going to be able to get a majority. Um, so, you know, that's my bias coming out there as well. Mm. But again, I think that's why it is important that Scottish people make those decisions themselves. And I think that a democratic vote is democratic vote and should be respected. I think that it's, you know, I can see the possibilities of independence. I'm not really pro it. I'm not really anti it. I can see how it could work and I can see how it could be made to work in a progressive way. But again, whether or not that happens or whether or not it ends up being kind of co-opted by the right, as devolution has often been in the past, mm. is really a case of uh, a question of whether or not... Um, this powerful political movement, which to be fair, has kind of emerged uh, much more strongly in Scotland, is able to take hold of that conversation and push it in a more progressive direction. Um, and I think certainly, you know, we can't rely on the SNP to just do good stuff because they're the SNP, as we've yeah. seen very clearly over the last however many years. Um, so they need to be held to account as well. And I think, you know, for as long as the one big question in Scottish politics is independence or not, it's going to be much easier for parties like the SNP to kind of get away with doing some progressive stuff, but actually not really transforming the economy in the way that they have suggested that they might. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of want to see a bit more of that, really. Yeah, definitely. Me too. But it does lead into that, you know, when, in your book, you're saying that um, it's around democracy and democratisation yeah, okay. and, you know, subsidiarity, having having the decision to make to make decisions closer to the people that are totally. I am all the definition for of independence. Yeah, all for yeah. devolution. We are way too centralised as uh, as a country. Um, but, you know, I don't have to tell you devolution is a very different question from uh, from independence. So if not independence, then certainly a substantial amount more devolution, particularly of, of spending grace thank you very much for your time we really appreciate it and um it was nice to meet you and we'll uh, hopefully speak to you again sometime lovely to speak to you too thank you bye now